Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we'll be continuing our reading of Five Months at Anzac. As always, go to 1914-1918.substack.com to pick up your free subscription uh, to the newsletter. Uh, that way you get the weekly, uh, the weekly roundup of World War I news gathered from around the internet and occasional longer articles as I write them. Right, let's get on with chapter 8. Everything you hold for a file is at stake. Nur durch starke Berührung wird der Weg, wenn wir den für uns nötigen Weltumfang geistigen Hochfang gewinnen. Chapter 8. Air Fighting The German aeroplanes flew over our gully pretty regularly. At first we were rather perturbed as they had a nasty habit of dropping bombs, but as far as I know they never did any damage. Almost all the bombs dropped into the water. One of them sent some steel arrows down, about six or eight inches in length, with a metal point, something like a carpenter's bit. In order to conceal our tents, we covered them with holly bushes, cut and placed over the canvas. Our aeroplanes were constantly up and were easily recognised by a red ring painted underneath, while the Taub, that's the German plane, was adorned with a large black cross. But after we'd been there a little time we found that it was not necessary to use glasses in order to ascertain whose flying machine was over us. We were able to tell by listening as their engines had a different sound from those belonging to us. Our aeroplanes were a source of good deal of annoyance to the Turks. They continually fired at them, but as far as I was able to judge, never went within a cooey of one. The burst of shrapnel away in the air made a pretty sight. Puffs of white smoke like bits of cotton wool in succession, and the aeroplane sailing unconcernedly along. It appears to be very difficult to judge distance away in the air, and even more difficult to estimate the rate at which the object is travelling. What became of the shell cases of shrapnel used to puzzle us. One day, Walkley remarked that it was peculiar that none fell on us. I replied, Surely there is plenty of room other than where we are for them to fall? Scarcely were the words uttered, than one came down close by. We knew it was a case from above and not fired direct because the noise was so different. The hydroplanes used by the Navy were interesting. Floating on the water, they would gather away and soar upwards like a bird. Their construction was different to that of the aeroplanes. A captive balloon was used a good deal to give the ranges for the warships. It was carried on the forepart of a steamer and was, I believe, in connection with it by telephone or wireless. When we first landed, while everything was in confusion, each man catered for himself, but it was a lonely business and not conducive to health. When a man cooked his own rations, he probably did not eat much. So a dugout was made close to the hospital tent and we had all our meals together. A rather pathetic incident occurred one day. Just as we had finished lunch, three of us were seated, talking of the meals the Australia provided, when a fragment of shell came through the roof onto the table and broke one of the enamel plates. This may seem like a trivial affair and not worth grousing about, 
but the sorry part of it was that we only had one plate each, and this loss entailed one man having to wait until the others had finished their banquet. I have elsewhere alluded to the stacks of food on the beach. Among them, bully beef was largely inevident. Ford, our cook, was very good in always endeavouring to disguise the fact that bully was up again. He used to fry it. Occasionally he got curry powder from the Indians and persuaded us that the resultant compound was curried goose. But it was bully beef all the time. Then he made what he called rissoles. Onions entered largely into their framework, and when you opened them, you wanted to get out into the fresh air. Preserved potatoes, too, were very handy. We had them with our meat, and what remained we put treacle on and ate as pancakes. Walkley and Betts obtained flour on several occasions and made very presentable pancakes. John Harris, too, was a great forager. He knew exactly where to put his hand on decent biscuits, and the smile with which he landed his booty made the goods toothsome in the extreme. Harris had a gruesome experience. One day he was seated on a hill, talking to a friend, when a shell took the friend's head off and scattered his brains over Harris. Before leaving the description of the officer's mess, I must not omit to introduce our constant companions, the flies. As Australians, we rather prided ourselves on our judgment regarding these pests, and in Gallipoli we had every opportunity of putting our faculties to the test. There were flies, big horse flies, blue flies, green flies and flies. They turned up everywhere and with everything. While one was eating one's food with the right hand, one had to keep the left hand going with a wisp, and even then the flies beat us. Then we always had the comforting reflection of those dead Turks not far away, the distance being nothing to a fly. In order to get a little peace at one meal in the day, our dinner hour was put back until dusk. Men wounded had a horrible time. Fortunately, we had a good supply of mosquito netting purchased with the Red Cross money. It was cut up into large squares, and each bearer had a supply. That brings us to the end of chapters 8 and 9. Uh, two short ones there. As always, please set out the substack. Uh, the directions for that are in the podcast notes. See you next episode. Bye.